This morning, we have something special for you here at Sanctuary. Five years ago, I was at an event at Princeton Theological Seminary, and I met Dr. Chris Green. Some of you have heard of Dr. Chris Green here at Sanctuary, and uh, we became wonderful friends, and that friendship has continued to this day. Um, while we are at that event, it was um, an event that was put on, for, uh, put on by the Association of Charismatic Theological Students at Princeton. I didn't know there was such a thing at Princeton, but they put on a symposium called uh, the Inspiration, Interpretation, and I think Application of Holy Scripture by the Holy Spirit. That's a mouthful. And they had a wonderful panel of people there. Uh, Dr. Green was among them. And there was one gentleman who had preached the opening night of the conference. And uh, as I was listening to the sermon, I felt like the weight of a pallet of bricks was on my chest. And I looked over, and Chris Green was sobbing with his head on the front of the pew. And I thought, okay, it's not just me. Something's going on here. Um, and then as we went through the symposium the next day, as I sat there, I felt this strong impression inside of me from the Holy Spirit that I needed to not only introduce myself to this man, but tell him that I needed him in my life. I don't know if you've ever walked up to a complete stranger and said that, but I did. And we have been friends for five years intervening. So that's been a wonderful blessing. I was talking to Dr. Green about this, and he said, here's what I love about Dr. House. His preaching never drifts away from our day-to-day -day lives. He speaks God's word to us in ways that illuminate the next steps we have to take. I imagine this is so because he not only preaches these truths, he lives them. He's someone I want to listen to and imitate. He said, is that okay? I said, it's all right, Chris. I think we can use that. So I'm very, as you could imagine, Dr. Green and I are very happy for Sanctuary this morning. Uh, Dr. Christopher House is a professor of rhetoric at Ithaca College, but he is a seventh generation preacher. And so he brings uh, tremendous gifting, anointing, insight, expertise, and he's just a good guy. So that's kind of nice as well. So I wonder if you could give Dr. Christopher House a warm welcome to Sanctuary this morning as he comes. Oh, wow. Good morning, everyone. Oh, wow. I, I was not expecting that. I was not expecting those kind words from Dr. Chris Green. And uh, wow, I'm just, I'm just deeply humbled. It's, it's an honor to be here. And it's been about five years since I first met Mark and Danielle. And, 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 and they have enriched my life in so many different ways. And their children have just enriched my life in so many different ways. And so I'm glad to be here. Um, with you all today, and then I met some other pastors and leaders here, Pastor Brent and Janice. Just, just, just um, a pleasure to be here and had dinner with some folks. So, um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to get right to the preaching because I, I just I don't know what to say after that introduction. Um, wow. All right. So let's let's go to the book of Ephesians, um, chapter two. And, and speaking from Ephesians is always a daunting task because there's just so much in this text. And uh, I'm going to try to um, 
work of as much of it as I possibly can and um, without getting lost too much in there. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And uh, let me just quickly pray. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Holy Spirit, I need you like never before each and every day of my life. And so I thank you because I feel your presence. You're already here. So speak so that everyone in this room knows that it is you. I thank you for this moment, this opportunity to approach your sacred word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So please bear with me. My voice is a little uh, uh, raspy. I had a cold or something earlier this, this week, and um, I was determined I'm still going to get here. And then I got on the plane, and what should have been a four-hour flight turned into a 22-hour travel experience. But I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. All right. Okay. So uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. He says, remember that. By those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at, the, at that uh, time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. When you're separated from God, you aren't a part of the uh, citizenship of Israel. You aren't connected to the hope that the Messiah will bring. So therefore, you aren't connected with God. You're without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. I love that passage. And then the brother that was just singing here, and he said, you are Emmanuel, God with us. There is no distance between us. Like we were far away, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the law, and even the, the physical wall that separated the Jew from Gentile in the temple, that dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulation. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, one new identity, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. And can I tell you, he's still preaching peace. That's still the message the world needs. They need to hear peace. For though... I'm sorry, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, so by the blood and by the spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ, Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone <clears throat> in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This particular text, Paul uh, reflects back. He tells us to remember. He talks about where we are, the present moment, and he talks about what God is doing in the present moment that has future implications. And I just want to just share uh, with you for a few minutes on the, the title of Lord, Make Us One. And that was the prayer that Jesus prays in the book of John. And it has some uh, real connections that I'd like to just bring out from this particular passage of Scripture here uh, in Ephesians. I, um, <clears throat> I approach this text as a, uh, as a trained rhetorical theologian. I'm interested in rhetorical theology. Uh, I'm interested in the way that theology uh, doesn't just move us to reflection, 
but it moves us to action. Um, I, I'm not interested in just reflecting. I want to know what is going to come out of it. How have I changed as a result of this? How has society changed? What are we doing with what we have heard? And um, I was intentional about studying rhetoric because I understand that the New Testament world, particularly the writings of Paul and the, the, the world of Christ, first century Palestine, was steeped in a rhetorical culture. The teachings of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates, the handbooks on rhetoric were widely available. So when, in order to understand the theology of Scripture, I have to understand the rhetorical world of the Scripture. What are the aims? What are the purposes? What are the goals, the objective of each of the speakers? There's a fascinating book um, called uh, The Rhetoric of the New Testament by George Kennedy. It's an amazing book, and it talks, it approaches the New Testament, particularly the teachings of Jesus from a rhetorical perspective. And it, it allows us to look at the various strategies and techniques that Jesus was using. That was just common. And rhetoric is a, uh, it's a, in the U.S., it's a bad term. You hear people say, that's just empty rhetoric or this, that's just, but, but, in terms of the study and the practice, it's just communicating ideas, how our, how our ideas communicated persuasively. And so every, uh, um, and, and every student in the ancient world, there were three levels of education, and at the third level, you would receive a rhetorical education, or there was some rhetorical training. And so Paul received this level of training, and so Paul is writing um, using these techniques. So the forms of letters that we read in the New Testament, there's generally a prescript, which gives the name of the sender, uh, an address to who it's going to, and then a particular greeting. So you use, I, Paul, the apostle, I'm writing to this holy people, and he gives a little greeting to them. And then he also gives a, a wish of health uh, or thanksgiving. And that's the particular part of the letter that's called the thanksgiving. Then there is the body, which is the reason for the writing. And then there is the ending, the farewell or the, uh, the greeting um, from others who are a part of this writing community. And then generally Paul would say, grace be with your spirit. Paul was writing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Paul was writing and, uh, to a community, the ecclesia. Right. And it's and it's we translated the church, but um, that's really not a good translation because there really were no church buildings uh, in the mid first century. There were no church buildings until like about 300 years later. So the church is really not a people. It was a group of folks that were called out. And so every group, there was a particular aim that Paul was trying to achieve. And so when I'm reading the book of Ephesians, I put on my, my rhetorical lenses and I'm, I'm looking at this text and, and, I, and I, I read it, but then I also play it. I would take my Bible app and I'll hit the button and I, and I want to listen to it because I try to put myself in the place of Paul's original audience. And as the letters were read, it's a totally different experience. When, when, when the scripture is read to you, as opposed to when you're reading it in the Bible. I mean, understand until Gutenberg uh, invented the press, you really couldn't uh, say to people, go home and read your Bible. Right? Most people didn't own the particular text. So we would come together, we would uh, hear the text written. So I wanted to see what is it that Paul is using? What strategies that will help me to really understand what is he trying to accomplish in the book of Ephesians? So when I look at Paul's letters, and I think about Aristotle, and many of you have taken public speaking. How many people have taken a public speaking class? All right, good. Most folks, as part of a, uh, your, your education, you take a public speaking class, and Paul or Aristotle says there's three types of proofs, three types of strategies that you will use when you're speaking, ethos, which is the speaker's credibility, 
right? Then you have pathos. Anybody know what pathos is? Anybody remember? It's your quiz for the day. I heard someone say something. Who remembers pathos? If you ever watch commercials by PETA, they're drawing on pathos. It doesn't hit you here. It hits you here. Emotional, emotional appeal. It appeals to your emotion. And then there's logos, which is, or logos, which is logical argument. But one of Paul's most uh, persuasive strategies is that he uses ethos. And, and this is this, his means of self-presentation. And so he would present himself when you read the text, Paul the apostle. Or he would write and he would say, I'm a slave or a captive or a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's presenting himself to different audiences in different ways. To the church at Galatia, he says he, he presents himself as being angry at the foolish decisions that they made. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's presenting himself in different ways. In Romans, he doesn't quite know the audience. He's never met them, so he comes off as more personable. But when he writes to the church at Ephesus, he writes as an apostle. And Aristotle says there's three type of speaking situations. One is called the judicial, which uh, you are writing to the audience regarding some past fact where there is a matter of guilt or innocence. And um, this is pretty much when you watch the Maury show and they want to know, are you the father, right? That's regarding some past act, right? Guilt or innocence. This is, this is the judicial, the courtroom speech. Then you have the deliberative, which is advising rhetoric. This is regarding some future course of action. And this speech, uh, type of speech setting is really used for the political moment. Here is the way we should go. We should raise taxes. We should lower taxes. We should do this about the future moment. Then you have the epideictic, which is occurring in the present, and it's really one of praise or blame. You want to praise or blame and extol some particular virtue that some individuals have embodied. So as I'm reading Ephesians, I have on that lens, and I'm reading it. And let me just share with you a few things that I, that I found. Paul tells the Ephesian church to remember, chapters 1 through 3, remember you were dead in sins. You were guilty. This is a past fact. There's no debate about it. But then he says, I also want you to remember that you were raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places. This is regarding the past. You were saved by grace. You were justified. But he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember that um, you were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. That the, the social distinction as Gentiles came with real consequences. You had no hope. You weren't connected to the Messiah in any kind of way. You were without God. Talks about what happens in the past. And he says, remember. But chapters 4 through 6, he turns deliberative regarding a future course of action. I want you to walk worthy of the manner of your calling. Be imitators of Christ. Put on the whole armor of God. This is regarding sanctification. And as a result of what has happened in the past, here is how you should walk it out in the future. But there's this one phrase that I really, really like, and I think it's important for us to remember as we're reading this, because Paul talks about the, the, the Gentile identity, talked about what that means. But then he says, but now in Christ, now in Christ. That's an important message for us to really embody, a message for us to meditate on. What does it mean for us to be in Christ? 
Paul is not negating the fact that there was Jewish identity, there was a Gentile identity. He says, but now there is a new identity that you have stepped into. And so what does it mean to live in this reality where there's a Jewish identity, there's a Gentile identity, uh, Gentile, excuse me, identity, and then now there's this identity in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? So I want to just talk about a couple phrases. Because when you read the scripture, you'll find that human beings are made in the image of God. But Paul talks about being in Christ. Image of God in Christ. Human beings, we're the crown jewel of creation. When God breathed, God breathed into Adam, Adam became a living soul. God began to form Adam from the dust, and then God breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. With that breath came capacity to be, do, and be what Adam could not be, do, and be by himself. But it came with that divine breath. And so human beings have the, the capacity to reflect the nature of God. Love, justice, mercy, grace. Now, sin has marred that image, but it has not completely wiped it out. Sin has marred the, the image, but it has not completely wiped it out. There is intrinsic human dignity because we're made in the image of God that places us above everything else in the created order. The Christian social ethic starts with the foundation that all humans are made in the image of God. All humans are made in the image of God. We're part of the, the family of humanity. That should shape how we view each other. This is not based upon uh, whether or not one has a relationship with Jesus by virtue of the fact that a person is born. You are endowed with certain abilities. You should be accorded certain dignity and respect and value. I don't have to agree with you politically to believe that you're made in the image of God. I don't have to agree with you socially. I don't have to agree with you even, even, I mean, theologically, you could be of another faith tradition. Look, my lens is that all humans are made in the image of God. So when you see protests happening all in society, people are, 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 are protesting their right to be fully human. The Bible says in John, that, John chapter 1, that to as many as believed Jesus, to them gave he the power to become, capacity to become the sons of God. So anything that try to bear us down on that capacity to become the sons of God, we have to stand against it. Your humanity is what makes me honor you. Not necessarily what you do or what you don't do. By virtue of the fact that you are made in the image of God, you are not an object that I can just do do whatever I want to with. You are a subject made in the image of God. You're able to move, to breathe, to act, to make decisions. I mean, think about it. We, 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 we can even operate in a level of transcendence that no one, no other being in the created order can. We're able to think about the future, think about the past, just as our God who doesn't dwell in time and space, but who's able to think about as transcendent and think about all things that are happening presently. I can do that now, go back in my mind. I can think about the, the, the future. Human beings are the only one who buy life insurance. 
I've never, I've never met an animal that, you know, said to another animal, is your premium paid? <laughs> but our ability to think about the future. But Paul makes a theological distinction. He says, there's the image of God, but then he says, now we are in Christ. That's the distinction. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, I know, I know you must be sent from God because, because nobody can, can do the miracles that you do. Here's what Jesus says. You must be born again. The invisible God forms Adam from the dust and he breathes into Adam and Adam becomes a living soul. Adam is made in the uh, image of God. The visible God in the book of John breathes on his disciples, receive the Holy Ghost. They're stepping in Christ. That's the distinction. You are worthy of dignity, honor, respect, and value simply because you are made in the image of God. If you never cross over into being in Christ, I'm still going to respect you. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to, even when I disagree with you, I'm still going to do it. But what does it mean to be in Christ? Second set of terms. Jesus prayed, he said, Lord, make us one. But oneness is not sameness. Lord, make us one. Oneness is not sameness. We believe in one God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. One, but not the same. You don't have to give up the distinctions, the cultural distinctions that make us who we are in order to be in Christ. We all don't have to sound the same. We all don't have to worship the same to understand we're in Christ. And I'm going to tell you while I'm la why I'm laughing. I remember the first time I went and spoke at your church in Newburgh. And we were about to do the Eucharist. And I saw the cup. And I saw the pieces of and I was like, okay. Now, how are they going to do this? Because in our tradition... We have the cup together, we pull the cellophane wrapper off, and we're at our seat. And then I thought, wait a minute, like, are we all going to have to drink from the communal cup? Because if I want to go first, I mean, if that's the case. <laughs> it, it was, we're, God, we're all one, but we're not the same. Right. We do things differently. Jesus prayed, Lord, make us one. You don't have to give up the way you sing. I mean, uh, see, <clears throat> there is no merit to the argument that race is biology, is biological. There's absolutely no merit to that. It is not true scientifically. It is not true at all. Race is something that we do, something we learn. We learn what it's like to be of a particular racial group. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and you didn't know who the chef was, but when you tasted the food, you said, if you give me three chances, I can get, tell you who's back in the kitchen cooking. Am I the only one who felt like that? Okay? Because there's certain, there certain seasonings, there's certain uh, flavors that people use of, who are of a particular racial or ethnic group. You learn to do it that way. Okay? Race is something, it's not something you, uh, you're born with, it's something you learn. The way we sing, the brother that was up here singing, the way he, he sings, I can tell, uh, comes from an African-American context. The riffs, you don't have to give that up to be in Christ. We just have to give up the social meanings that's attached 
to our race, racial classifications. One is inferior, one defo. Oh, no, 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 not in Christ. You know? So like, you know, people, when they say, I don't see race, I don't see gender, I don't see all that stuff. Excuse me, when you left out the sanctuary, you did go into the restroom that says women's room. So clearly you see it. The meanings, inferior, superior. Lord, make us one. Oneness is not sameness, which leads me to this recognition. We're different, but not deficient. Just because it's different, because the the Eucharist was served differently, didn't mean it was deficient. Jesus breathes on his disciples and tells them, receive the Holy Ghost, changes their heart. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And there is a process. We have been socialized to view the world in certain ways. We've been socialized to see each other in certain ways. We've been, we've been socialized to believe that if people don't do it the way we do it and something is wrong with them, then their way is deficient. It's just different. It's just different. Do you realize Jesus never seen a keyboard? Jesus never heard a praise team. Jesus never played, never played uh, the disciples never played bass while Jesus was preaching. It's just different. So if you go into church, they don't have these things. It doesn't mean it's deficient. It just means it's different. We're not deficient. We're just different. We're one body with many members. And God isn't colorblind. God made us the way we are. I appreciate the diversity. I appreciate it. I appreciate the diversity of sound. Even when I'm in worshiping in and, and churches across the world and they're worshiping in a different language, even if I don't understand the language, I can, understand, I can feel the spirit behind it. I can feel the, 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 the spirit behind it. And, I, and, and, and if God's there, I'm happy. Because worship really isn't designed for me anyway. Worship is God food. That's not for me. Different, not deficient. The way we move through the world, the way we think about things. I was just sharing with one of my assistants back in Ithaca. Uh, she made the statement, something about common sense. You know, like, I, you would just think that's common sense. I said, what is common sense? How do we know everybody has it? Common sense is cultural. What makes sense to you in one context does not make sense in the other. And so we just appreciate, we just see things differently. But it's not a sign that one way of doing it is better than the other. And it's the notion of superior, inferior. That's the idea that we have to root out. Because in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. It's not like people stop being males or females when they become in Christ. It's, it's the meanings that's attached to it. So we have to unlearn all of that stuff and recognize that you don't have to stop um, uh, embodying and stop with your experience and your expression that is steeped from a culture, that is steeped because when we approach the scripture, we approach it with all of those lenses, who we are race, class, gender, all of that. We, we approach all of that when we approach the scripture. And you can hear that even reflected in the songs that we sing. 
right? When I was growing up, I remember they used to sing this song. It's like, Gee, when I was down and out, Jesus, you brought me out. I've got a reason. Anybody heard that song? I got a reason to praise the Lord. And then it said, um, when, when I didn't have no food and my baby needed a new pair of shoes, I got a reason to praise the Lord, right? There was another, another song that talked about when my, uh, when my telephone was disconnected and I was waiting for my next paycheck, I got a reason to praise the Lord, okay? Songs that are written from people who are at the bottom of a social hierarchy sound very different from people who are at the top of the social hierarchy. How you think about God, depending upon where you are in that social order, or is reflected in your, your, your hymnology. I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. To be able to sit and, you know, think about your love forever and not have to worry about if my telephone is disconnected. Well, I worry about if my light bill is due. That's a, that's a markedly different experience. But both share a reality of God. And one is not deficient, they're just different. Paul tells us in Ephesians, we want to be able to comprehend with all the saints. All the, no one has an has a absolute monopoly on how God is, how God moves, how God will be. We need each other. I need your perspective. I learned something when I went, when I went, when I went and preached at Mark's church. And then the next church that I went to, and they, I was like, okay, I got this. I know what to do. Diversity enhanced my experience. Diversity, it enhanced my experience. Our position can change our condition. Paul said that we're seated in Christ. We're seated in Christ. That's our position. So the meanings, the law, the practices that caused distinctions between Jew and Greek, that, that dividing wall, I mean, that, that was separated the Gentile court from the Jewish court. In Acts 27, Paul almost got in trouble. Well, he did get in trouble because he brought a Jew, a Gentile into the Jewish part of the temple. I mean, those distinctions, Paul says, no, 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 we're seated in Christ. And now that we're in Christ, we have to, we have to change our social condition from that position. We can't let the world squeeze us into its mold. We can't let the world squeeze us in, into its mold. We have to always operate from that position of power, that position of strength. Because regardless of a person's color, regardless of their ethnic background, we all came by way of the same cross, and we all come by way of the same spirit. Whether you like it or not, we are all one. We have to, as a church, as a body, and right now the body of Christ is more polarized, perhaps more than any other time, at least in my lifetime. We're more polarized. And we can't let the world pull us to these, to, to these extremes. We have to remember what does it mean to be seated with Christ? And we have to recognize that some people's experiences are going to be very different from ours. And we have to be in conversation with one another. Because you have an aspect of God. You have some, a, a, a part of your relationship with God that will help to enhance how I understand God. We operate from that position, being seated in heavenly places. He raises us up. 
And then the last thing is he tells us to operate from our identity and not our capacity. To operate from our identity and not our capacity. He's going to raise us up, be seated with heavenly places. Then he tells us, now I want you to walk this out. That's the challenge. That's rhetorical theology. Now I want you to walk it out. Because he, and this is what I mean by uh, operate from your identity and not your capacity. When you read the book, Paul says, to the saints and those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. Chapter one. When you get around verse four and five, it's like, would y'all stop sinning? Would you stop lying? And it almost makes you think now, like, who's he writing to? Because on the one hand, I mean, are you liars or are you saints? Sort of like when he says, I, Paul, am the apostle, but I'm the chief of sinners. Sinning, lying, being the chief of sinners, we all have the capacity to do that. Just because we're in Christ don't mean we just stop sinning. He said, look, you still have the capacity to do this, but your identity is a saint. Your identity is in Christ. He said, you were by nature children of disobedience, children of wrath, but now your nature has been changed. You have a new nature. You have the nature of Christ. The difference between a sheep and a pig is that both of them will fall in the mud. One of them is going to lay down there and wallow in it. The other one is going to cry to get out of it. They both have the capacity to fall in it. Paul said, we, when, if we fall in it, we're going to cry. We're not wallowing in it anymore. We have to always operate from our identity, not our capacity. The world needs to see a distinction between us and them. The only institution that is authorized to bring about oneness in this world is the church. Lord, help the church. Lord, help the church. It seems like it's easier to attack each other on Twitter than it is to pick up the phone and have a conversation. Well, I guess this is my amen section, so let me stand right here. Let me stand right here. Seems like it's easier to do that, that we forget who we are, that we get caught up in the world's way of doing things. But I'm determined as best I can to help show the world Jesus. To show the world that, look, Jesus would stand out against injustice. He would stand out against the oppression of widows and orphans and children. Absolutely. And he would also tell people to straighten up their act. But he, all, he always did it in love. He always did it in love. And it's a matter of the head and the heart thing. I mean, you think about it. We've, some of us have been 40, 50, 60 years of socialization, of thinking certain things. And we don't realize everybody's hurting. Everybody is hurting. Everybody's hurting. You can't have an evilness, an evil system operating in society 
and that people are, uh, are playing a role in, and only a certain group of people are hurt and others go unscathed. You can't play around with evil like that. Let me show you this passage of Scripture, and then I, I'm, I'm finished. Um, Ecclesiastes. I love this because uh, verse uh, chapter 4. I'll just close out with this. 4 and 1. Let me go to the NIV. He says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressor, and they had no comforter. Everybody's hurting. We're alienated from one another. We're alienated from one another. We don't connect. I mean, we, we're friends on Facebook. We have social connection, but the deep, intimate connection that we need as brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have that. Lord, make us one. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we realize that you have made us in the image of God. Most of us in this room, I suspect, are now in Christ. We have been born again. But Lord, we've allowed social distinction. Sometimes we're conscious of it, others, other times it's unconscious. The ways in which these distinctions shape how we treat our neighbors, how we treat those we don't know. Lord, I pray that you would bring to the surface, bring to our conscious awareness the limitations, the, the bias, the prejudice that we all have in different ways. Lord, bring it to the forefront of our thinking. Help us to walk closely with you. Help us to walk closely with each other, Lord. And, and this is not new to you, Lord, because you had the same issue with your disciples. Even after they were filled with the Spirit, they still were xenophobic, and you worked with them. Allow your spirit of grace and mercy to help us, to change us. Lord, you said to make us one, not the same. Help us to operate from our position of strength, being seated together, together. There is no difference there. We're seated together in Christ. Help us to remember our identities and operate out of our identities and not our capacity. Lord, every prayer you've ever prayed, the Father answered. Help us to be a part of the answer to this last prayer that is yet to be fully realized. And that is, Lord, make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.